0: are listening to the Already Gone Podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. Today's episode contains mature content and may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. If you didn't show up to work tomorrow, would work notice... Would they call your house, or, more likely, your cell phone? Would someone check to make sure you didn't oversleep, or that you weren't in the hospital, or something more sinister? Would you be missed right away? It was a Monday morning in November of 1987 when Ricky Brink didn't show up for work. This was unlike him. Not only was Ricky a good worker, he was reliable. A call was placed to his wife, Gail, at her office, to see where Ricky could be. Perhaps he was sick and forgot to phone in. When Ricky's co-workers make the call, they learn that Gail hadn't made it into work that day either. Ricky's bosses, James and Donald Herringa, decided to head over to the Brink home and check on the couple. When the Heringa brothers arrive at the Brink house on Ransom Street, they see Ricky's car in the driveway and the tidy, one-story house appears empty. It's when they get out of the car and approach the house that they realize something terrible has happened. Come with me to a cold November morning in 1987, when a happily married young couple is found brutally murdered in their West Michigan home. Before we dig in, if this case sounds familiar to you, we've talked about it before, during episode 81 the murder of Deborah Polinsky. The Brinks live just half a mile from the farmhouse where Deb met her end in 1977. On Saturday, November 21, 1987, Gail and Ricky Brink are busy. They've been living in their Ransom Street home for only a few weeks after spending the entire summer and early fall working on the house, making it nice to live in. They started that day with chores around the house and some errands, including a stop at Ricky's parents' home that afternoon. In the evening, they planned to attend a wedding. One of Ricky's co-workers at Trendway was tying the knot, and the couple was looking forward to the celebration that night. On Monday morning, November 23rd, Ricky's dad comes by the house with a load of pallets to drop off. He leaves them in the backyard around 8 a.m. and heads out again. It's after 10 a.m. when the Brinks get a call asking where Ricky is, as he hadn't shown up for work. And his wife, Gail, well, she hadn't shown up for her job, either. Could the newlyweds be playing hooky in their new home? Ricky's parents take a ride over to the house that Ricky shares with his wife, Gail. Both cars are still in the driveway. Just how Ricky's father saw things earlier that morning. In fact, he'd stuck his head in the door and called out to the kids, but when he got no answer, he figured they were sleeping in and didn't explore further. This time, though, the Brinks enter the house. They see lights are on and the television is on. There is no sign of their 29-year-old son or his young wife. When they enter the bedroom, they see someone is in bed, curled up on their side beneath a throw pillow from the living room. When Ricky's mother lifts the pillow she discovers the body of her daughter-in-law, Gail Wingarden Brink. Gail has been shot in the face multiple times, and their son Ricky is nowhere to be found. The Brinks retreat, and Isla pauses in the living room to grab the phone and call for help, but the cordless handset was left on the table and has no charge. Isla can't get a dial tone. As the couple comes out the front door of the house, they are greeted by Don and Jim Heringa, the men who work at Trendway with Ricky who had come by the house to check on him. Isla tells them that Gail is dead and the phone isn't working, and they have to call for help. Her husband, who is visibly shaken, isn't saying much. The Heringas guide the Brinks to their vehicle and make sure they don't go near their son's Chevy Blazer parked near the garage. You see, on their way to the front door, Jim and Don spotted Ricky's body on the front seat of his blazer, and they don't want the Brinks to see what remains of their son. They make sure that the older couple doesn't get near the Chevy with their son's body slumped inside. An act of kindness in a very dark time. The Ottawa County Sheriff is called to the scene and the first officer to arrive confirms that both victims, Ricky in the front seat of his car, and Gail lying on her side in her waterbed beneath a cushion from the living room, he confirms that they're both deceased. Aside from a body in the bedroom and another in the vehicle outside, the home shows no sign of break-in or struggle. When police perform a quick search of the house, they find $250 in cash in a dresser drawer. In the bedroom, there is a large coin jar filled with quarters. A kitchen drawer contains another $200 in cash and a stack of bills waiting to be paid. The house was not burglarized before or after its owners were murdered. Gail is still wearing her wedding and engagement rings, as well as a gold watch on her wrist. Detectives think this could be a murder-suicide. Could Ricky have killed his young wife, covered her face with a pillow out of shame before retreating to his car in the driveway and turning the gun on himself? Shooting someone in the face is personal. Covering the face of the victim after a murder? That's also a sign that the killing is personal. Wanting to follow up on this theory, police decide to search the Chevy for weapons. They find that the front passenger floorboards are soaked in blood from Ricky Brink's injuries. Using flashlights and trying not to disturb evidence, they search the vehicle but find nothing. Police then search the area around the car, and again, no weapon is located. This was not a murder-suicide. Someone came to the Ransom Street home and murdered Gail and Ricky Brink. It's 1 p.m. when detectives along with crime scene technicians go to work on the house. They're taking photos of the scene and collecting evidence. It's a long, difficult day for the Brink and Wingarden families, and for investigators. It's after 8 p.m. when a van arrives to transport the two bodies to the hospital. A sheriff follows the transport van, then escorts the bodies to the morgue where they are turned over to hospital staff, with an autopsy planned for the next morning. When Ricky's parents are questioned by police about the young couple's activities that weekend, they tell of the Saturday afternoon visit, and that Ricky and Gail planned to attend a wedding at the Holiday Inn that evening, as one of Ricky's co-workers was getting married. The Brinks tell police that Gail and Ricky are, quote, the happiest couple in the world. The pair was getting along well and enjoying putting the Ransom Street house together, making a home for themselves. Ricky's mother is asked if her husband could have done this, or if he could have found the bodies earlier in the day. She tells them no, that she would have known if something were amiss, because her husband can't hide his feelings from her. When questioned, neighbors describe the young couple as friendly, hardworking, and house proud. Ricky was known to stop at home on his lunch break, do a couple of quick chores, and then return to work. Ricky's employers describe him as reliable, easy to get along with, and a valued member of the company. Ricky's brother, Bud, also works at Trendway. The Haringas know the Brink family and describe them as good, reliable people. Gail's employer tells a similar story about Gail. The young brunette is well-liked and hardworking. So two well-liked young people are in the morgue awaiting autopsy. It doesn't make sense. Ricky and Gail Brink were a happy couple... At the start of what should have been a long and happy marriage, they weren't living a high-risk lifestyle. Who would want to kill them in such an up-close and personal way? Results from autopsy don't give law enforcement much to work with. Gail was shot in the head three times at close range. The bullets did not pass through, and an x-ray reveals them still in her skull. Gail had not been sexually assaulted. Ricky was shot twice at close range. There are powder burns on his skin and on the white dress shirt he was wearing. When the Herringus found him on the front seat of his car, Ricky was still in the clothes he'd worn to the wedding. Lab work done at autopsy reveals that both Gail and Ricky had been drinking, and they were likely legally drunk when they were shot. The doctor places their time of death between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. Saturday to Sunday night. After speaking with the Brink and Wingarden families, police turned their attention to the wedding the couple attended in the hours before they died. Was the couple fighting? Was there a conflict between Ricky or Gail and another guest? Nothing. No one had anything to report other than a bit of a surprise that they didn't stay later. Dozens of wedding guests are interviewed about the events of the evening, but there's nothing out of the ordinary to report. When detectives speak with Gail and Ricky's friends, they're given information about Ricky's former girlfriend, Kathy, and Gail's former boyfriend, Lars. When she was 19 years old, Gail was dating Lars Johnston. The two were building a house together, thinking about getting married and settling down. It seemed like a good start for the couple, but it wasn't meant to be. The relationship wasn't working out. Gail started seeing other people behind Lars' back, including possibly Ricky Brink. Lars was angry about her infidelity and confronted Gail. Gail's brother, Ryan, was witness to the fight, including when Lars backhanded Gail. Ryan said that he jumped in, getting between the couple and helping Gail move her things out of Lars' house that very day. Even though Ryan Wingarden considered Lars a friend, he would not stand for anyone hurting his sister. The relationship between Lars and Gail was over. Lars would give police an alibi for the night of the murder, saying he was with friends and went to the movies that Saturday. Police ask him to take a polygraph, and he agrees. The results of the polygraph are not made public. Prior to dating Gail, Ricky Brink had been dating Kathy Gutz. It appears that Ricky ended his relationship with Kathy so he could start seeing Gail Wingarden. This created bad feelings between Gail and Kathy, as Kathy was unhappy about how the relationship with Rick ended. Kathy attended the wedding that Saturday night. She wasn't dating anyone. Unlike Ricky, Kathy hadn't found that special someone, so she asked a co-worker, Ian McCabe, to be her plus one for the wedding. Kathy had an alibi for the time of the murder. She'd attended an after-party with co-workers. Police also asked Kathy to take a polygraph. Once the coroner finishes his work on the brinks, their bodies are sent to the funeral home to prepare for burial. Visitation for the couple is held Thanksgiving night, and the next day, police are in attendance at the double funeral. The Sheriff's Department keeps watch over the services inside Grace Episcopal Church, and later graveside at Lakewood Cemetery. In the days following the funeral, law enforcement sets up a stakeout at the cemetery, hoping someone will show up at the grave. Sadly, the surveillance doesn't give them any leads or suspects. Two weeks after the murders, another tip comes in. This one seems promising. The home on Ransom Street, the ranch that Ricky and Gail worked so hard to fix up and make their own, there are concerns about the previous owner. Until late 1986, the house was occupied by a man named Sid Colby. Colby, a member of the Road Knights motorcycle gang, is known to law enforcement, and word gets out that they want to speak with him about the murder at his former home. Colby makes himself available to police for a conversation. He is cooperative and forthcoming. Telling police that he had nothing to do with the murder, he had no issue with the Brinks. In fact, one day a few weeks after he'd had to move out, he'd return to the house looking for his mail. The Brinks were friendly, helped him find what he was looking for, and then they parted ways. The whole exchange pleasant and above board. Colby told police he'd lived in the Ransom Street house for two years. He had originally purchased the home on a land contract, but couldn't keep up with the payments, so he moved out. Sid Colby also provided police with an alibi for the time of the murder. He'd been drinking at a local pub that night. Around 11 p.m., he left the pub for home and went to sleep. His girlfriend was with him from 11.30 p.m. on Saturday until late Sunday morning, he told police that if they wanted him to take a polygraph, he would take one. He was issued a polygraph, but the results of his polygraph were not made public. At this point, it's been three weeks since the murders. The holidays and the end of the year are fast approaching. Police have spoken to three good suspects that showed potential for involvement in the murder, but the case isn't moving. Gill's former boyfriend, Lars Johnston, Ricky's former girlfriend, Kathy Goetz, and the biker who used to reside at the Ransom Street property. They all look promising, but none of them are good for the murder. They have alibis and polygraphs and witnesses to corroborate their stories. I know. In 2018, we don't take polygraphs seriously, but in 1987, they were considered a valuable tool for investigators. The Ottawa County Sheriff's Department works the case through 1988 and into 1989, but as the two-year anniversary of the double murder approaches, tips have stopped coming in and the case is cold. Without a new lead or new evidence, the double murder of Gail and Ricky Brink won't make it into the solve pile. A decade passes. A long decade without answers. In 2000, the Ottawa County Sheriff takes another look at the case. In February, they speak with a woman named Judy, formerly Judy Brink, wife of Rick's brother, Bud Brink. She told police that in the days after the funeral for Ricky and Gale, Bud told her, Life is too short to be unhappy. I want a divorce. And the pair split. Now remarried with a family of her own, Judy is over any big feelings she may have had about the break with Bud. She is willing to help law enforcement however she can. They asked Judy to once again go over what happened that weekend, to verify Bud's alibi. Judy's story does not change from when they spoke with her back in 1987, and again, she provides an alibi for Bud Brink. Judy tells police that she doesn't believe Bud would have hurt his brother or Gail. It just wasn't in his nature. What she does tell police is that Gail's family was strange, and that Gail's brother, Ryan, was into drugs at the time of the murders. She heard that Ryan was arguing with Gail about money in the weeks before the murder. Gail, it seemed, had loaned her brother money to get a car, but then Ryan lost his job and wasn't paying her back. There was also the issue of the Wingarden family home, which was under construction in 1987. Gail's parents were living in a camper, and they wanted to move the camper from a campground to Ricky and Gail's house to save money. Both Ricky and Gail were against the Wind Gardens relocating to their property, even if it was just temporary. Toward the end of 2000, Gail's older sister, Cheryl Murphy, is back in town for a visit. Cheryl had moved out of state long before the murders happened, but she'd been in contact with her sister Gail and with the rest of the family both before and after the murders. The Sheriff's Department sets up a time to speak with Cheryl. During the interview, she relates a conversation that her brother, Ryan Wingarden, had with her on the Friday prior to the murders. Ryan told her he was angry with Gail. Ryan resented that Gail and Ricky wouldn't let the family move on to their property for a few months while the house was finished. He told Cheryl, quote, They think they're so good. They think they're better than everyone else. He had also said to Cheryl, quote, I wonder if I could have done it which Cheryl found bizarre and unsettling. Why would Ryan say or think such a thing about their sister's murder? As her interview continued, Cheryl told police that Ryan has a bad temper and that he's a liar, a manipulator, a con artist. While all of this is interesting, it's not evidence, and it's not anything police can use to make an arrest in the case. It will be a decade before police receive another piece of the puzzle. It comes in the form of an interview with Forrest and Narva Champlin. Yep, you heard me, Forrest and Narva. Forrest Champlin is Gail Wingarden's uncle, her mother's brother, and Narva Champlin is his wife. The Champlins tell police that the Wingarden boys were a handful, and that Forrest's sister, Dorothea, isn't much of a parent either. The Wingarden boys were a challenge, And at one point, Dorothea asked her brother and his wife for help with her son, Breck. She just couldn't manage all these kids. Forrest and Narva agreed and were surprised when Dorothea showed up with Breck and another of her sons, leaving the boys at their uncle's home for several months. Dorothea neglected to send them any financial help, something she told them she would do. The Champlins had three boys of their own, and it was a hectic few months with the extra Wingarden kids there. The Wingarden family had eight children, from oldest to youngest, Lynn, Cheryl, Terry, Breck, Ryan, Gail, Shay, and David. During the interview, Narva related two interesting things to investigators about Ryan Wingarden at the time of Gail's murder. One, that he owed Gail money. She'd given him a loan so he could have a car and get to work. When he was laid off and didn't look too hard for a new job, Gail still expected him to pay her back, and the payments were about $90 a month. Ryan resented Gail pressuring him to keep up the payments when he was out of work. Gail was a savvy businesswoman. Whenever she loaned someone money, she made that person sign a note stating how much he or she had received from her and how much was still owed to Gail. While Ryan told the sheriff's department and his own family that he hadn't seen his sister or her husband the weekend of the murder, he also said that Gail made banana bread that weekend, and how much he loved Gail's banana bread. There was a loaf of banana bread in the refrigerator of the Brink home when Gail and Ricky were killed. How could Ryan have known of the freshly baked bread if he didn't see or speak to his sister that weekend? Other bits and pieces from this interview include Narva telling police that Gail's mother, Dorothea, was, quote, weird. One example of Dorothea being weird is that in the early 1980s, when Gail was a young teenager, Dorothea abandoned her husband and children, taking off with a girlfriend, and the two women began traveling as groupies with the Oak Ridge Boys. If you aren't familiar with the Oak Ridge Boys, they were a popular country music act, Eventually, Dorothea returned home to the family, but the months she was gone chasing after the Oak Ridge boys was not a good time for her husband or children. Gail, Ryan, and the rest of their siblings didn't have the most stable or predictable upbringing. Dorothea's behavior is another strange aspect of an already strange case. It's going to take a bit longer, but a resolution is coming. The Brink and Wingard families have waited so long. It seems like an arrest will never happen. But then, a couple that had been together more than 20 years, well, they had a big fight, and suddenly, someone is willing to talk to the police, and someone else, someone close to the victims, finds themselves without an alibi. But before we continue, here is a preview from the Pretend Radio podcast. At the heart of every crime, there's a lie. In order to do this job well, you're going to have to learn to lie. But you're going to have to remember who you're lying to and when to lie and when not to lie. But a lie is only powerful if you choose to believe it. It all came out. All the story came out. It turned out he had two wives and five fiancés. That he wasn't marrying women because he loved them. He was actively impregnating women to rip them off of money, me being one of them. So why do we fall for it every time? My, my father told me at a young age, he says, he says, Carl, the two easiest things to sell anybody, anything that'll improve their looks, and anything that'll make them money, and that's what you want to sell. Pretend Radio is a documentary podcast about people pretending to be someone else. I interview real con artists, snake oil salesmen, and former cult members anyone living a lie. Search for Pretend Radio wherever you get your podcasts. In 1987, Pam Marchini is a single mom of a young son. She'd been dating her current boyfriend, Ryan Wingarden, for a few months when he revealed to her something terrible. He confessed that he'd murdered his sister and her husband. Ryan even took Pam to the brink home on Ransom Street and showed her what he'd done. He'd then threatened Pam with violence if she told anyone. Ryan alluded to a sexual relationship with his sister just a few years previous, when he and Gail were both teenagers. Ryan couldn't let that information get out. He couldn't let that become public. He had to do what he did. Pam understood, right? Pam knew that he had to do it. Apparently, Pam did understand. She understood well enough to provide an alibi for him. Pam Marchini stayed with Ryan Wingarden for two years, and when she became pregnant with his son, she married him. Pam stayed quiet, keeping her husband's secret, until 2013 when they had a fight, not just any disagreement, but a big one, and Pam decided it was no longer time to keep quiet about Ryan Wingarden what he had told her and shown her all those years ago. According to Pam, Ryan was upset with Gail in November of 1987, both because he owed her money that he couldn't pay back since he was out of work, and because Gail and her new husband with their nice house wouldn't help the Wingarden family by letting them move onto their property. This was something that would have saved the Wingardens' money, something they didn't have much of. Finally, Gail and Ricky, the two were happy, and they were in love, and Ryan couldn't get the sexual relationship he'd had with Gail when they were young teens out of his head. What if Gail told Ricky about what had happened? What if Gail told him that her brother had forced himself on her? Ryan couldn't live with that. He had to do what he did. No one could know that Ryan had forced himself on Gail. Pam Marcini wingarden admitted that the alibi she'd provided for Ryan was false. She revealed how Ryan told her he committed the murders, who was killed first, and how he'd placed a pillow over Gail's bullet-ridden face. When police talk to Ryan about Pam's story, he's angry. How could they fill his wife's head with these things? How could they upset her so? It simply wasn't true, none of it. She was making it up. In the first week of October 2013, Ryan Wingarden begins leaving messages for the detectives. Not just a couple of, hey, it's Ryan Wingarden, call me back type messages, but long, rambling messages that go on for several minutes. It's during one of these messages left for the detectives that Ryan mentions the banana bread that Narva Champlin told police about years earlier. Ryan explains that he knew about the banana bread because people were in and out of the house after the murders, and he saw it in the fridge. Listeners, I'm having a hard time believing that when you enter your siblings' home after they've been brutally murdered, that you're checking in the fridge for refreshments. And, as if his frequent lengthy messages for the sheriff's department aren't bizarre enough, by early November, Ryan is assisting other people and leaving messages for police. Ryan Wingarden is suddenly Mr. Helpful, helping people leave voicemails that detail alternate theories of the crime for the investigative team. In November, the anniversary of the murder of Ricky and Gail Brink comes and goes, then Thanksgiving, then Christmas. In January 2014, the Sheriff's Department executes a search warrant at the home of Pam and Ryan Wingarden. And at the end of January, Ryan Wingarden is arrested for the 1987 murder of his sister and brother-in-law. Wingarden pleads his innocence. He points to the motorcycle gang angle, saying it wasn't him. He would never hurt Gail. He loved his sister. He had no reason to harm Gail or Ricky. In the months between his arrest and trial, Ryan begins a letter-writing campaign imploring his wife not to testify against him, asking her why she allowed detectives to brainwash and manipulate her. And just like with the voicemail messages, Ryan doesn't write a couple of letters, he writes close to 30 of them, often handing them off to visitors and asking that they pass them on directly to Pam. When the trial begins in 2014, Wingardens' defense points to the motorcycle gang connection to the house on Ransom Street. His defense also points out, correctly, that there's no physical evidence linking their client to the murders. There's no murder weapon, they have no fingerprints, and they have no DNA evidence. During the trial, Sid Colby, the former owner of the Brink Home, testifies that, yes, at the time of the murder, he was cooperating with the Drug Enforcement Agency. He said that he didn't like seeing kids having access to drugs, but that was the only time he helped them out giving them information on deals that could impact schools or other child-focused activities. And Colby confirmed that, yes, during his time in the gang, particularly in the mid-to-late 80s, he made enemies and his life was threatened. The prosecution countered with their star witness, Pam Wingarden. Pam is criticized by the defense for not coming forward sooner, why did she wait until her marriage was in trouble to speak out about what her then boyfriend supposedly told her and showed her? Pam responded that she was afraid of losing her kids, that if she revealed what Ryan had done, she could be implicated and lose her job, or even worse, separated from her oldest son. Then she became pregnant with Ryan's child and worried more. It seemed better, safer for her to say nothing and continue to care for her children and family. Ryan was a controlling and isolating husband, making sure that Pam did not form close friendships, and perhaps he did this to make sure she wouldn't confess to anyone what she knew. Jim Meacham, a friend of Wyan Wingarden in 1987, testifies that on Monday, November 23rd, he stopped by Ryan's place around 6 a.m., hours before the bodies of Gail and Ricky Brink were discovered. During his visit, Ryan told Jim that his sister, Gail, was dead. This corroborated Pam's earlier testimony that Ryan knew Gail and Ricky Brink were dead long before the bodies were discovered. One of Wingarden's cellmates testified that Ryan told him about killing his sister and her husband, shooting each of them multiple times. Wingarden said that the motive for murdering his sister and her husband was jealousy. Other members of the Wingarden family took the stand. Ryan's older sister, Cheryl, testified that Ryan told her that, quote, "'Sometimes I wonder if I did this.'" And he had told Cheryl he remembered walking down the hallway of the Ransom Street house and seeing Gail roll over in bed. On to her left side the same side she was lying on when she was shot. Cheryl's former husband testified that during a phone call with Ryan, Ryan told him he used a twenty two to shoot rats in the yard of his home. When Chuck Murphy said, what kind of gun are you using? Because Chuck knew that Gail and Ricky were shot with a twenty two, and Ryan responded, oh, just my gun, without specifying the caliber, and then Ryan changed the subject. Despite a lack of physical evidence linking Ryan Wingarden to the murders, and the criticism faced by Pam Wingarden for holding on to the story of seeing the bodies of Gail and Ricky Brink, it wasn't enough to protect Ryan Wingarden. He would be found guilty of both murders. At sentencing, Ryan Wingarden ranted at the judge, at the police, and at his wife. He told the court that, quote, They mentally raped my wife into this. Wingarden's mother, Dorothea, and his brother, David, were a vocal minority in court, insisting that Ryan is innocent and directing their anger toward Pam for her lies. Meanwhile, Pam Wingarden filed for divorce. In April of 2014, Ryan Wingarden was given two life sentences for the murder of his sister and her husband. In 2015, Wingarden appealed the verdict... Mary Owens, Wingarden's appellate attorney, described Pam Wingarden as a weak-willed woman, saying, quote, She's like a child. Anyone could manipulate her. Owens argued that the sexual relationship between Ryan and Gail nearly a decade before the murder wasn't much of a motive since Ryan had confessed to others about the relationship, and several people who testified at trial knew about it. Owens moved for the charges to be dismissed due to insufficient evidence. Upon review of his case, the Michigan Court of Appeals found no errors in his first trial and upheld the sentence handed down by Judge John Halsing. Fifty-two-year-old Ryan Wingarden will spend the rest of his life in prison. Ryan Wingarden continues to protest his innocence and receives support from his mother and his brother David. While Ryan Wingarden was behind on making payments to Gail for the auto loan she'd made to him, It's thought that the motive for the murders was his shame over the sexual relationship, however short-lived, that he and Gail had when they were young teenagers. And perhaps his shame was over forcing his younger sister into unwanted sexual contact. A big thank you goes out to our Patreon supporters, Mackenzie, Zoe, Shirley, Arthur, and Aslan, If you would like to support Already Gone, visit patreon.com slash already gone. You can support the show for as little as $1 a month and receive early access to episode. There are multiple tiers so you can contribute at a level you're comfortable with. That's patreon.com slash already gone. Already Gone is a bi-weekly true crime podcast focused on Michigan and the Great Lakes region. For more information on this case, including photos and links to some of our research, visit our website at www.alreadygonepodcast.com. You can find the show on Facebook or on Twitter at Already Gone Pod. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. Thank you for listening, and please, be safe.